0: This is a reading of the book Anthroposophical Guidelines by Rudolf Steiner, also translated as Anthroposophical Leading Thoughts. I'm on page 80 of the e-book, beginning after Guideline 149 with the subsection entitled What is Revealed When, when Between Death and a New Birth, One Looks Back into Previous Lives? Part 2. In a second period man passed out of the archai realm into that of the archangeloi, with whom he was not as bodily spiritually bonded as previously with the archai. His bonding with the archangels was more spiritual, but it was still intimate enough that one cannot yet speak of a separation from the divine spiritual world. The archangel hierarchy gave to man's etheric body the element which corresponds to what the archai gave to his physical body. Just as the physical body's form is adapted to the earth in order to become the vehicle of self-consciousness, the etheric body is adapted to the outer earthly cosmic forces The earth lives in the physical body and the star world lives in the etheric body. The inner force that enables the human being to live on the earth and at the same time wrest himself from it through posture, movement and gesture, he owes to the archangels creative activity in his etheric body. Just as the earth forces can exist in the physical body through the figuration, so do the forces exist in the etheric body that stream to the earth from all sides of the circumference of the cosmos. The living earth forces, which appear physically in the body, are those that make its form relatively firm and enclosed. The human contours remain fixed for earthly life, subject to a subordinate metamorphosis, the capacity for movement solidifies through habit, etc. In the etheric body there is permanent flexible mobility, which is a mirror image of the ever-changing constellations during a person's life on earth. Even the changing sky by day and night corresponds to the shaping of the etheric body, but also the changes that take place during the time between birth and death. This adaptation of the etheric body to the heavenly forces does not contradict the gradual separation of the stars in the sky from the divine spiritual powers as described in the previous contemplation. It is correct that in very old times divine will and divine intelligence lived in the stars. In later times the stars became calculable. The gods were no longer active in their creation. But through his etheric body man gradually attained his own relationship to the stars, as he did to the earth's gravity through his physical body. The etheric body, created during the second period by the archangeloi hierarchy and inserted in man when he descends from the spiritual world to earth at birth, absorbs the extra earthly cosmic forces. An essential aspect which man received through this hierarchy is that of belonging to a group of people on earth. People are differentiated all over the earth when looking back at this second period one does not see the present-day differentiation of races and peoples but a somewhat different more spiritual one this is attributable to the star forces in the different constellations appearing at different locations on earth <clears throat> on the earth is the on the earth in the distribution of land and water in the climate in plant growth and so on live the stars. Insofar man must adapt to these conditions on earth, which are conditions of the heavens, this adaptation belongs to the etheric body and is a creation of the archangeloi choir. However it was just during this second period that the Luciferic and Aramonic powers entered into human life in a special way. This was necessary, although at first it seems that man was being driven to a lower level of his nature. If man was to develop self-consciousness in his earthly life, it was necessary that he separate himself from the divine spiritual world from which he originated to a greater extent than was possible by means of that world itself. It happened during the time when the archangels acted upon him, for then the spiritual force of the archangels was less able to keep Lucifer and Ahriman at bay than when the stronger archai forces acted upon him. The Luciferic powers caused a stronger inclination in the etheric body, toward the stars than it would have had if only the divine spiritual powers originally bound to man had been active. And the physical organization was made more subject to the earth's gravity than would have happened had these powers been unable to act. In this way, the seed of complete self-consciousness and free will was planted in man. Even though the Aramonic powers hate free will, they brought about the predisposition for free will in man by detaching him from his divine spiritual world. First, however, in that second period, what the various hierarchies from the seraphim to the archangels brought about in man was impressed more into the physical and etheric bodies than would have happened without the Luciferic and Aramonic influences. Without these influences, the activities of the hierarchies would have remained more in the astral body and the eye. By this means, the more spiritual groupings of humanity over the earth, striven for by the archangels, did not occur. Being impressed into the physical and etheric bodies, the spiritual forces were transformed into their opposite. A differentiation according to races and peoples, instead of the more spiritual one, took place. (laughs) Without the Luciferic and Aramonic influences, the people on earth would see themselves as having been differentiated from heaven. The groups would have comported themselves in their lives as beings who willingly give to and take the spiritual from each other lovingly. In races and ethnic groups, the earth's gravity appears through the human body. In the spiritual groupings, a mirror image of the spiritual world would have appeared. Because of all this, the later complete self-consciousness in human evolution had to be predisposed beforehand. This also required, although in a diminished form, that the primeval human differentiation, which existed when man first passed from the hierarchy of the exousiae to that of the archae, be preserved. Man experienced, through feeling and envisioning, this stage of evolution in a kind of cosmic school, although he had not yet developed the knowledge that this was an essential preparation for his later self-consciousness. But the felt envisioning, or excuse me, envisioning of his evolution forces was nevertheless important then for the integration of self-consciousness in his astral body and eye. In respect to thinking, what happened was that man was equipped by the Luciferic powers with a tendency to immerse himself further in the old spiritual forms and not to adapt to the new forms, for Lucifer always strives to retain the previous forms of life for man and thereby man's thinking was organized in such a way that in life between death and a new birth he gradually developed the capacities which formed thoughts in him in primeval times. At that time these faculties could visualize the spiritual, despite being akin to present-day mere sense perception for the physical bore the spiritual in its surface. At present, however, the capacities for thought preserved from those times can only function as sense perception. Gradually the ability to elevate one's self to the spiritual world diminished. And this is fully the case now, when in the consciousness-soul age, the spiritual world has become veiled in darkness for man. Thus in the nineteenth century, the best natural scientists, who could not become materialists, said, We have no choice but to merely investigate the world that can be investigated with the senses through measurement, number, and weight. But we have no right to deny a spiritual world which is hidden behind the senses, That is, an indication that a light-filled world, unknown to man, could exist where he only stares into the darkness. As thinking was dislocated by Lucifer, willing was by Ahriman. Man's will was endowed with a tendency to a kind of freedom which should have happened only later. This freedom was not real, but an illusion of freedom. Humanity lived for a long time with this illusion of freedom. It provided humanity with no possibility of spiritually developing the idea of freedom. It swung back and forth between the opinion that man is free or that he is trapped in a rigid necessity. And when true freedom arrived with the emerging consciousness-soul age, man could not recognize it, because he had been trapped much too long in the illusion of freedom. Everything that had been instilled in man in this second stage of evolution of his lives between death and a new birth, he carried as cosmic remembrance into the third stage, the one in which he presently lives. During this stage, he stands in a similar relationship to the hierarchy of the Angeloi, as he did during the second stage to that of the Archangeloi. Only the relationship to the Angeloi is one in which full independent individuality is realized. <coughs> For the Angeloi, now not the choir, but one for each person, capital R, excuse me, one O N E, but one for each person, concentrate on achieving the correct relation between the lives between death and a new birth and earth lives. What at first appears to be a remarkable fact is that for the individual, during the second stage of his evolution, of lives between death and a new birth, the entire hierarchy of archangeloi was active. Later this hierarchy assumed the guidance of ethnic groups, in which one archangel acted as ethnic spirit for a people. The primal forces, or archai, remained active in the races, and a being from the hierarchy of the primal forces acted as race spirit for one race. Thus contemporary humanity retains, also in life between death and a new birth, the cosmic remembrance of previous stages of evolution. And also where, in the physical world, spiritual guidance appears, as in races and ethnic groups, this cosmic remembrance is distinctly present. From the Gertianum New Year, 1925. Guideline 150. In a second period of evolution of lives between death and a new birth man entered the realm of the archangeloi. During this period after it had been predisposed in the creation of the human form during the first period the seed was implanted in the soul for his later self-consciousness. Number 151 During this Second period, man was pushed deeper into the physical world due to the Luciferic and Aramonic influences than he would have been without these influences. Number 152. During the third period, man entered the realm of the Angeloi, who, however, only made their influence felt in the astral body and the eye. This period is the present one. What happened in the two previous periods lives on in human evolution and explains the fact that in the age of the consciousness soul, in the nineteenth century, man stared into the spiritual world as into complete darkness. Next subsection is entitled, What is the reality of the earth within the macrocosm? In these contemplations, we have viewed the evolution of the cosmos and of the earth from the most varied viewpoints. We have shown how the forces of man's being come from the outer earthly cosmos, except for those which give him his self-consciousness. These come to him from the earth. This indicates the meaning of the earth for humanity. But it brings up another question, what is the meaning of the earth for the macrocosm? In order to approach the answer to this question, it is necessary to review what has already been said. The seer's consciousness finds the macrocosm increasingly alive as it penetrates further into the past. In the distant past all calculability of its nature ceases. Man was separated from this nature. The macrocosm entered ever further into the sphere of the calculable. In the process, however, it gradually died. In the measure in which man, the microcosm, emerged from the macrocosm as an independent being, the former gradually died. In the cosmic present, a dead macrocosm exists. But in this evolutionary process, not only man arose, the earth also arose from the macrocosm. Man, who derives the forces for his self-consciousness from the earth, is much too close to it to clearly understand its nature. In the full enfolding of self-consciousness, During the consciousness-soul age, man has become accustomed to direct his attention to the spatial magnitude of the universe, and to consider the earth as being a kind of dust particle, inconsequential when compared to the physical space of the universe. It will, therefore, seem strange at first, when spiritual observation reveals the true cosmic meaning of this so-called dust particle. The vegetable and animal kingdoms are embedded in the earth's mineral foundation. In all of them live the forces which appear in their various forms during the seasons. Look at the plant world. In autumn and winter it displays dying forces. The seer's consciousness perceives in these forms the essence of the forces which have brought about the macrocosms process of dying in spring and summer the forces of growth and sprouting are evident in plant life the seer's consciousness does not only see in this growth and sprouting what is blessed by plant life during the year but a surplus a surplus of germinating forces the plants receive more germination force than they expend for the growth of leaves, flowers, and fruit. This surplus of germinating forces streams out into the outer earthly cosmos before the seer's vision. In the same way surplus force from the mineral kingdom streams out into the outer earthly cosmos. This force has the task of bringing the forces that come from the plants to the correct regions of the cosmos. Under the influence of the mineral forces, a newly formed image of a cosmos is created by the plant forces. There are also forces that come from the animals. These do not act as the mineral and plant forces do, streaming out from the earth. But they gather what the mineral and plant forces have carried to the universe, and combine them into a sphere, globe, and create therewith the image of an enclosed macrocosm. This is how the spiritually cognitional consciousness perceives the essence of the earthly domain. It exists within the dead macrocosm giving new life. Just as, from a seed which is so insignificantly small, a very large plant emerges when the old one dies and disintegrates, a new macrocosm will come into being from the dust particle earth when the old one disintegrates. That is a true vision of the earth's essence, that in all its parts a universe is germinating. One obtains an understanding of the kingdoms of nature only by sensing this germinating element in it. Within this germinating life, man undertakes his earthly existence. He participates in the germinating as well as in the dying processes. He derives his thinking forces from the dying element. As long as these thinking forces came in the past from the still-living macrocosm, they were not the foundation of the self-conscious human being. They acted as growth forces in human beings who still had no self-consciousness. The thinking forces in themselves may not have a life of their own if they are to form the foundation for free human self-consciousness. Together, with the dead macrocosm, they must in themselves be the dead shadows of the cosmic past. On the other hand, man participates in the earth's germinating processes. His will forces come from them. They are life itself, but man does not participate in their essence with his self-consciousness they radiate into the shadows of thought within the human being. The shadows of thought stream through them and in this streaming of free thought in the germinating earth full free human self-consciousness enters humanity in the consciousness soul age. The past casting shadows and the future containing the seeds of reality meet each other in the human being, and this meeting is human life in the present. That this is so is immediately evident to the seer's consciousness when it finds itself in the spirit region which borders directly on the physical one, and in which one also finds Michael's field of activity. All earthly life becomes transparent when one senses the seed of the universe in its foundation. Every plant form, every stone, they appear to the human soul in a new light when it realizes that every one of these things contributes by its life, by its form, to the earth being the embryonic seed of a new revivifying macrocosm. If one only tries to bring to life his thinking about these facts he will realize what it can mean for humanity's sensibility from the gertianum january 1925 guideline number 153 during the beginning of the consciousness soul age people had become accustomed to concentrate on the spatial physical grandeur of the universe and above all, to be sensible only of this. Therefore one called the earth a dust particle within the physically immense universe. Number 154. This dust particle reveals itself to clairvoyant consciousness as the seed of a newly developing macrocosm while the old one dies out. It had to die in order that man could separate himself from it in full self-consciousness. Number 155. In the cosmic present, man participates with his liberating thinking forces in what has died, the macrocosm, and with his will forces, concealed from him in their essence, in the earth's germinating, revivifying, New Macrocosm. Subsection entitled Sleeping and Waking in Light of the Preceding Contemplations Sleeping and waking have often been considered within anthroposophical contemplations from various points of view. But understanding of such facts of life must always be intensified anew when other subjects concerning the world are considered. The contemplation that the earth is a seed for a newly emerging macrocosm presents an opportunity for enhanced understanding of the phenomena of sleeping and waking. When awake, man lives in the thought shadows, which are emitted from a dying world, and in the impulses of will the innermost essence of which he perceives as little with normal consciousness as he perceives what perceives what takes place during sleep excuse me during deep dreamless sleep. I'm sorry, let me read that again. When awake, man lives in the thought shadows, which are emitted from a dying world, and in the impulses of will, the innermost essence of which he perceives as little with normal consciousness as he perceives what takes place during deep, dreamless sleep. By the induction of these subconscious impulses of will into the thought shadows, autonomous self-consciousness arises. The I lives in this self-consciousness as man experiences his surroundings in this state his inner feelings are penetrated by outer earthly cosmic impulses which enter the present from a far distant cosmic past he is not conscious of this a being can only be conscious of what he participates in with his own dying forces and not with growing forces that give life to that being. Thus man is conscious of himself and that he loses sight of the foundation of his being. But it is just because of this that he is in a position to sense himself completely in the thought shadows while in the waking state. No reviving element hinders his inner being from participating in the process of dying out. But this living in the dying conceals the nature of the earth as the seed of a new universe. In a waking state, man does not perceive the earth as it is. Its incipient cosmic life is concealed. Man lives thus in what the earth gives him, as the foundation of his self-consciousness. In the age of self-conscious I-enfolding, he loses spiritual sight of the true nature of his inner impulses as well as those of his surroundings. But it is just in this hovering over the world being that he experiences the being of his I. He experiences himself as a self-conscious being. Above him, the outer earthly cosmos. Below him, the earth, a world whose true essence remains hidden. Between them, the revelation of the free I, whose true essence radiates the full resplendence of knowledge and free will. It is otherwise during sleep, when man's astral body and his I live in the seed nature of the earth. The most intensive quote, urge for new life, close quote, acts in human surroundings in dreamless sleep. And his dreams are permeated by this life, but not so strongly as to prevent him from experiencing them in a kind of semi-consciousness. In this semi-consciousness observation of dreams, one sees the forces through which the human being is woven from the cosmos. In the flash of dreams, the astral enlivening of man streaming into the ether body becomes visible. In these flashes, thought still lives. Upon awakening it, upon awakening it is captured by the forces through which it dies, becomes shadow. This connection between dreaming and waking thoughts is meaningful. Man thinks with the same forces by which he grows and lives, yet these forces must die in order for him to become a thinker. This is the point where a correct understanding can arise as to why man grasps reality through thinking. In his thoughts, he has the dead picture of what creates him from quickening reality. The dead picture. This dead picture is, however, the result of the activity of the great painter, the cosmos itself. To be sure, there is no life in it if life were in it, the eye could not unfold. But it contains the universe's whole content in all its glory. To the extent possible at the time in my title, Philosophy of Freedom, I described this interconnection between thinking and reality. It is where I wrote that a bridge leads from the profundity of thinking to the profundity of nature's reality. For normal consciousness, sleep extinguishes because it leads to the earth's sprouting life in the becoming macrocosm. When imaginative consciousness eliminates this extinguishing process, an earth with the sharp contours of the mineral, vegetable and animal kingdoms no longer stands before the human soul. Rather, is it a living process which kindles within the earth and flames out into the macrocosm? In the waking state, man, with his own I-being, must withdraw from the world-being in order to achieve free self-consciousness. In the sleeping state, he reunites with the world-being. During the present cosmic moment, the rhythm of man's earthly existence consists of experiencing his own being outside the inner world, and the extinguishing of the consciousness of his own being within the inner world. During the time between death and a new birth, the human eye lives within the beings of the spirit world. There, everything which escaped consciousness during the earthly waking state enters this consciousness. The macrocosmic forces emerge from their completely living existence during the remote past up until their moribund condition in the present. The earthly forces also emerge, however, which are the seeds of the becoming macrocosm. And while sleeping man sees into it as clearly as he sees the earth glistening in the sun during his earth life, only in so far as the macrocosm has become moribund, as it is at present, can the human being go through life between death and a new birth with a higher wakefulness than during his waking earth life. An awakening through which man becomes capable of mastering the forces which are present only fleetingly in dreams. These forces fill the whole cosmos. They are all-pervading. The human being derives from them the impulses from which the great artworks, excuse me, the great artwork of the macrocosm, his body, is formed during his descent to earth, what dawns sun abandoned in dreams lives in the spirit world spiritually sun-drenched, waiting till the beings of the higher hierarchies or man invoke it to creative activity from the Gertianum in january nineteen twenty five guideline one hundred and fifty six in a waking state. In order to experience himself in completely free self-consciousness, man must renounce experiencing the true essence of reality in his own being and in that of nature. He raises himself out of the ocean of this reality in order to truly experience his own eye in the thought shadows. Number 157. In the sleeping state man lives with the earth's surroundings, but this life extinguishes his self-consciousness. Number 158. In dreams the powerful universal being flares up in semi-consciousness, from which the human being is woven and from which he forms his body during his descent from the spirit world. In earthly life this powerful, universal being dies out in man, even as far as the thought shadows, for only in this way that it can become the foundation for his self-consciousness. Subsection entitled Gnosis and Anthroposophy when the mystery of Golgotha took place, Gnosis, in quotes, was the manner of thinking of a part of humanity who could provide not merely a feeling but also a cognitive understanding of the event which had the greatest impact in the earthly history of mankind. If one wishes to understand the mentality of those in whom Gnosis was prevalent, it is necessary to bear in mind that the age of Gnosis was that of the comprehension or sensitivity soul, also known as the intellectual soul. Due to this fact, one can also find the reason for the almost complete disappearance of Gnosis from history. This disappearance is perhaps one of the strangest occurrences in human evolution. The unfolding of the comprehension or sensitivity soul, or intellectual soul, was preceded by that of the sentient soul, and the latter was preceded by that of the sentient body. When world events were perceived through the sentient body, all human knowledge was in the senses. The world was perceived in colors, tones, and so forth. But in the colors, tones, and warmth states, a world of spiritual beings was conceived. One didn't speak about matter, in which colors, warmth states, and so forth appeared. One spoke of spiritual beings, which were revealed by what the senses perceived. The unfolding of quote unquote, comprehension, which later lived in man alongside sense perception, did not yet exist in that age. Either One concentrated on the outer world, in which case the gods revealed themselves to him through his senses, or his soul withdrew from the outer world, and he felt a faint sense of life within him. A meaningful transition took place when the sentient soul developed. The manifestation of the divine through the senses diminished. In its place appeared the more or less divine-less sense impressions, the color and warmth states, etc. In man's interior the divine revealed itself in spiritual form, in pictorial ideas. Thus he perceived the world from two sides, from outside through sense impressions, from within through impressions of spiritual ideas. Man then had to be able to perceive the spirit impressions in as clear and as defined a form as he previously had perceived the divine through the senses. He could do so as long as the sentient soul age persisted. From his inner being pictorial ideas rose up fully formed. From within he was filled with sense-free, spiritual content, which was a mirror of cosmic content. The gods who previously appeared to him clothed in the senses now appeared in spiritual garments. This was the age when Gnosis arose and lived. A marvelous cognition existed in which one could participate if he developed his inner life in purity in order that divine content could manifest itself. From the fourth and into the first millennium before the mystery of Golgotha, this gnosis prevailed in a most knowledgeably advanced portion of humanity. Then the age of the comprehension or sensitivity or intellectual soul began. The pictures of the divine world no longer emerged on their own from the human being's inner self. He had to use inner strength in order to draw them out of his soul. The outer world, with its sense impressions, became questionable. Only when he used inner strength to draw the divine world pictures from his soul, did he obtain answers. But the pictures were pale compared to their previous form. This was the mental constitution of the humanity which developed so wonderfully in Greece. The Greek felt himself to be in the sensible outer world and felt in it a magical strength as an impetus for the unfolding of cosmic images. In philosophy this mental constitution developed in Platonism. But behind it all stood the mysteries in which what existed from the age of the sentient soul in Gnosis was faithfully preserved. Human souls were trained for this faithful preservation. In normal evolution, the comprehension or sensitivity or intellectual soul developed. Through special training, the sentient soul was revivified. Thus, during the comprehension or sensitivity soul age or intellectual soul age, a richly developed world of the mysteries existed. In this world lived the cosmic images of the gods, also insofar as they included rituals. One looks into the interior of these mysteries and views the universe in the images of the most wonderful ritualistic acts. Those who experienced that also perceived the mystery of Golgotha when it took place in its most profound cosmic significance. But the mysteries were kept completely apart from the outer world's disorder in order to maintain the purity of the world of spiritual images. And for human souls this became ever more difficult. Then spiritual beings descended from the spiritual cosmos into the highest mystery sites in order to help those who were striving for knowledge. In this way the impulses of the sentient soul age unfolded further under the influence of the quote-unquote gods themselves. A mystery gnosis arose, about which only a few had the barest notion. Beside it existed what could be absorbed by means of the comprehension or sensitivity or intellectual soul. This was exoteric gnosis, remnants of which have come down to posterity. In esoteric Gnosis, people became less able to raise themselves to the unfolding of the sentient soul. This esoteric wisdom gradually became the sole possession of the quote-unquote gods. And this is a secret of the historical evolution of humanity, that from the first Christian centuries until the Middle Ages, divine mysteries were active in it. In these divine mysteries, angelic beings preserved for human beings what they could no longer preserve themselves. Thus mystery gnosis persevered while exoteric gnosis was being eradicated. The cosmic picture content, which in the mystery gnosis was preserved in a spiritual way by spiritual beings, as long as it was to be active in human evolution, could not be grasped by human, conscious human understanding. But its feeling content was to be preserved, and in the right cosmic moment it was to be given to the people who were prepared for it, in order that by means of its soul warmth the consciousness soul could penetrate later into the spirit realm in a new way. Thus spiritual beings built the bridge between the old and the new cosmic contents. Indications of this secret about human evolution exist. The sacred Jasper cup of the Grail which Christ used when he broke bread and in which Joseph of Arimathea caught the blood from Christ's wounds Therewith, containing the mystery of Golgotha, was, according to the legend, taken into custody by angels until Titorel could build the grail castle and let it descend to the human beings prepared to receive it. Spiritual beings bore the cosmic pictures in which the secrets of Golgotha lived. They sank the feeling content not the picture content, for that was not possible, into humanity when the appropriate time arrived. This implanting of the feeling content of ancient knowledge can be only a stimulus, but a most powerful stimulus, which in our age of the consciousness soul and in light of Michael's activity can develop a completely new understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. Anthroposophy strives for this new understanding. From the foregoing description one sees that it cannot be a renewal of gnosis, which depended on the kind of knowledge derived from the sentient soul for its content, but that it, anthroposophy, must bring an equally rich content from the consciousness soul in a completely new way. From the Gertianum January 1925. Guideline 159 Gnosis developed in its true form during the sentient soul age, fourth to first millennium before the mystery of Golgotha. The divine revealed itself to human beings during this age as spirit content within them, whereas during the previous age of the sentient body It manifested itself through the sense-impressions of the outer world. Number 160 During the age of the comprehension or sensitivity or intellectual soul, the spirit-content of the divine could only be faintly experienced. Gnosis was preserved in strict mysteries, and when men were no longer able to do this, because they were not able to revivify the sentient soul, up until the Middle Ages, it was accomplished by spiritual beings, although not the cognitive but the feeling content. The Grey legend contains intimations of this. Meanwhile, exoteric gnosis, which penetrated into the comprehension or sensitivity or intellectual soul, was exterminated. Number 161. Anthroposophy cannot be a renewal of Gnosis, for the latter was dependent on the development of the sentient soul. Anthroposophy must, in the light of Michael's activity, develop a new understanding of the world and Christ derived from the consciousness soul. Gnosis was a cognition preserved from an ancient age and was the best way for humanity to understand the mystery of Golgotha when it actually occurred that is the end of part 11 i'm on page 91 of the ebook i will begin with the subsection entitled human freedom in the age of michael in part 12